This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It is time for the uh, government of Ontario to ban predatory loan operations. That was the uh, topic of an op-ed piece that appeared in the Toronto Star on Friday. The authors uh, are, uh, of course, uh, Ward 3 Councillor Matthew Green and also uh, Tom Cooper, the uh, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, who joins us here in studio on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. How are you doing? Haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, I think this is my first time on in 2017. Well, congratulations on that. Good to have you with us. It's, it's great this, to be uh, w- here. With a topic that we have talked about before, because you and, and Matthew Green and others have been driving the bus on this for quite some time right now. Uh, and, and to their credit, the City of Hamilton Council has responded to this, and they've put some different regulations in like this. But you've always said right from the get-go on this, Tom, that you'd like to see a much broader approach to this from the provincial government. Yep, yep. And and now is a perfect opportunity, Bill. There's a bill in front of the Ontario legislature. It's going to It went to committee last week. It's called Bill 59. It's called Putting Consumers First, and uh, it does offer up some small tweaks, I guess you could call it, to the Payday Loan Act. Um, but I really don't think it goes far enough to protect consumers. And and so in a very real sense, we're not putting consumers first. We're putting payday loan companies first uh, because there needs to be much stricter regulations in place. This is an industry that, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that preys on the most vulnerable consumers in society. So people who run into a financial emergency uh, for whatever reason, might need to take out a payday loan. Uh, but those interest rates are astronomical, and uh, people very quickly get trapped into a, a cycle of debt uh, by these payday loan companies. They end up having to go back time and time again to to not only repay the initial loan, but to take out enough money so they can buy their basic necessities, uh, cover food, rent, utilities, what have you. And and so this industry is really predicated on, on pulling money from people who can least afford it. And unfortunately, our government regulations have been so lax that this industry has operated in a virtual vacuum and uh, has gotten away with things that uh, they really should not have. So I'd love to see new regulations in place. I'd love to see the interest rates, you know, if if not uh, go significantly down. Um, I'd certainly like to see the industry banned if possible, but uh, I don't think well, the and government that's not will a, go that that's far. That's not outside the realm of possibility because Georgia has done that mm-hmm. essentially, isn't it? The state of Georgia. Yep, they have, and uh, they put in place anti-racketeering uh, legislation to to prevent payday loan operations from from operating. Um, the other jurisdictions have have just put in very, I think, tight regulations. So you'd look at uh, even the province of Quebec. They the maximum payday loan operations out there are allowed to charge is is thirty five percent interest annually. Now, if you look at what um, comparable operations here in Ontario are allowed to charge, because payday loans are for such a short period of time, they're usually around fourteen days. If you annualize the the amount of interest uh it's right now closer to uh, 469% annual interest rates which uh which is 8 9 times uh what the criminal code of canada says is the criminal interest rate so why is nothing being done then i mean these numbers are outrageous and and the government's aware of this oh they are aware of it they've been aware of it for a long time and uh, i know people who who assist uh people who fall into situations of deep debt uh are very aware of it too so i, I just recently saw a a good report by uh, by hoyes michaelis which is uh, an insolvency uh trustee uh program uh it's up and running here 
here in Hamilton and many other communities across the province. And they put out a report saying that the people they're seeing who are coming in, um, you know, seeking help, uh, maybe um, looking for uh, solutions to deal with their debt are, are over the last number of years have gone deeper and deeper in debt to these payday loan companies. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're sending out, uh, sending out the uh, call as well for, for significant reform. So it's not just, um, you know, s- social service advocates who deal with people who are in vulnerable situations. Certainly, uh, certainly uh, credit counselors and, and others are seeing the impact of, of the payday loan operations. And again, this is an industry that uh, often isn't even um, owned by Canadian companies. Uh, uh, Western Union and other big holding companies in the United States uh, are, are often uh, the owners of some of these payday loan operations. And, and so what we see is people borrowing money from uh, payday loan outlets. And this is money that is practically leaving not only neighborhoods and, and people's pockets, but it's leaving the country as well. So it's not money that's regenerated in the community and, and, and being spent locally. It's profits that are being driven out. And, and so that's why I've called these uh, these payday loan operators really profiteers because that's what they're doing. They're profiting on despair of people in communities. There are a couple of different angles to this. Well, probably more than a couple, but let's focus on on, on two major ones at this point. One is to change the legislation, and that may mean more restrictions. And, And like you say, this is not inventing the wheel because many jurisdictions have already done that. So there are some templates they can follow. But the other thing that you and I talked about years ago was, okay, if, if you're going to eliminate this or at least uh, try to, to you know modify the impact that it's having on people that are in desperate straits, you've got to provide them with an alternative. Has there been any progress at all in that? There's been a little bit of progress, not nearly enough, I think. Um, so what are the alternatives out there right now? It's traditional financial institutions as well as credit unions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there, there used to be a, a, another solution as well that was in place up until the 1960s in uh, in Canada, and that was postal banking. So Canada Post ran, uh, you know, a service that enabled people to to borrow money and 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 use that as almost a traditional banking source, um, and, and that was particularly important in communities that didn't have uh, small communities that didn't have traditional banking uh, services. So I think. Where there's a will, there's a way, and we really need to try to encourage uh, credit unions um, to to step up, and, and some have done so. There's some ongoing conversations here in Hamilton uh, from some major credit unions that are looking at uh, offering uh, offering a service, and I'm hopeful there'll be something announced on that in the next little while. Because they're going to have to do something about rights, for instance. I mean, because we're yeah. talking about people that don't have much in the way of financial resources exactly. at this stage. And and it doesn't do any good to say, yeah, we're going to help you guys out, but except you, you don't qualify. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Van City Credit Union in, in Vancouver has a good program up and running from what I understand. And, and their, their rates of interest are 10 times lower than a payday loan company. Um, but they do offer these small emergency loans to people who, who maybe have bad credit. And, and that seems to be working well. I know a credit union in Windsor has started up a service. A social service agency in Ottawa has done the same thing. So I, I, I think there is definitely uh, the potential for these alternatives. But we also need uh, to understand that the, the big banks have a responsibility too. And that responsibility is ensuring that their services, financial accessibility is open to people with low incomes. Um, But we know the payday loan uh, 
companies aren't just preying on low-income people anymore. It's also middle-income people and some are some higher-income earners. What what I think the challenge is is the way the work place has changed now. And we have much more precarious work, erratic scheduling. People aren't sure how many hours they're going to get from one week to the next. So it makes it really difficult uh, to plan ahead and budget ahead if uh, if you don't know whether you're going to get 15 hours this week and 30 hours next week. And uh, that's particularly true of employees in the, in the retail and service sectors. And from my understanding, those tend to be some of the people who are, who are using payday loans more and more because they have no other choices um, in order to meet some of those emergency financial needs. Now, there's another interesting element to this as well that I, I found back when I was still on city council working in the Social Services Committee. Uh, was and it was the banks didn't start this, but they 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 didn't make it any easier for people that are in dire financial circumstances when they started closing branches all over the place. Yeah. And you know that as well as I do that you know you used to go and and there'd be a, a BMO bank or, or a, and a Royal Bank and a com- Bank of Commerce all within a couple of feet of each other, and there'd be one in just about every neighborhood. Yeah, uh, they've closed many of those down. So and and, and and then that's you know that was their decision, and they said, well, that's a, a cost saving, blah blah blah, but. With that gone, in that vacuum, in came the payday loan companies because we found out that many people that are living in poverty right now and in some of these these areas that are, are stressed out right now from a financial and economic standpoint, uh, these people don't travel very much. Most of them don't have cars. Uh, some of them don't take public transit. They, If there isn't a financial institution within three or four blocks of their place, they're not going to go to a bank. Yeah. They're not going to go on uh, to a, a bus and go downtown to do their banking. Yeah. If there's a payday loan store around the corner, that's where they're going to go. Exactly. And Hamilton Social Planning and Research Council tracked this over the last 20 years here in Hamilton and found that very thing that where we're banks have, have really evacuated communities and neighborhoods, the payday loan companies have stepped in. And that's one of the reasons uh, Councillor Matthew Green is so concerned about this, because he's seen in his ward in Ward 3 uh, the biggest growth in the city in terms of new payday loan operations setting up and and traditional financial institutions leaving. So there's very much a reality that these payday loan operations set up on the fringes of low-income communities, as you say, and and really appeal to people with very little access to to transportation or to be able to move around the community. Public transit's expensive, and and if, if a payday loan operation is just down the street and you're ru- you've run into a financial emergency and you need uh, a little bit more money to to purchase groceries for the week that might seem like a short-term viable solution unfortunately that's what payday loan operations do they they appeal to people who are desperate and then they pull them into that cycle of debt and, and keep them there What's uh, what's the response from the government been on this? As I say, I, I know they're not unsympathetic to this. Uh, they, they understand that there's a problem here. They understand there's a problem. I don't think they're willing to make the tough decisions to make these payday loan companies go away. So um, we've seen some modest, I think, improvements uh, in legislation through this uh, Putting Consumers First Act. Uh, it certainly doesn't go far enough. Um, what we need are, are much stricter regulations around the interest rates. Um, one of the things that uh, we've talked about here in Hamilton is, is a payday loan uh, customer or consumer's bill of rights uh, that really lays out what people need to do. Hamilton's taken fantastic leadership on this issue, I have to say, and City Council voted unanimously to bring in Ontario's first payday loan licensing 
Um, and, and that includes things like putting up big posters that actually tells people what the actual annual interest rates of these payday loans are, as well as uh, uh, ensuring that uh, people who work at the payday loan outlets uh, have to provide credit counseling information, city sanctioned credit counseling information to people who come in the door. So that's good. Um, but there's much more that provincial government can be doing as well. And I think part of that goes to, uh, goes to advertising. And here's another area where the payday loan companies, I, I think, use these uh, marketing gimmicks to try to lure people in the door. So you'll see them on the storefronts, uh, you know, get your first loan for just a dollar. And, and that's a way of getting people in the door. And uh, when they come back, it may not seem as, uh, as big a financial burden, but over the long haul, it really turns into that. And we've seen uh, aggressive advertising, I think, by the industry as well, um, certainly in, in various media sources, but now uh, emigrating to, uh, uh, to, to the Internet and, and social media. And, and I think this industry really, really needs to be clamped down on. Well, it's a, let's face it, like many other corporations, I mean, there's a, a huge, uh, they got a lot of resources, and, and there's a lobby group there that's trying to obviously influence the government here to just say, to, we're, and we've heard these arguments, you know, and you and others have talked about this and some of the concerns that have been raised by by advocates uh, th- to try to put everybody on a level playing field. And, and they'll say, oh, no, we're providing a service, you know, for somebody who's, you know, a few bucks short, and they, you know, it's the 12th and they get paid on the 15th, we can bridge that. And I'm sure there are customers that are like that. But mm-hmm. I, I think the numbers you've seen and the Social Planning and Research Council have seen indicate that the majority of people are people that are really under a load of debt. Yeah. And, and it's one thing to say, oh, sure, don't worry. There's, here's, here's a contract here. This explains what you can do and everything else and what the rates are. If you need the money, you're not even reading that. It's like when somebody come, comes up online and says, you know, terms and conditions. You know, just hit I accept. Yeah, Because I want the program, okay? I want the app. I don't want to read all that stuff. Yeah. And they're not going to read that stuff either. Exactly. And that's because people are in financial crises. And uh, it, it's challenging. And a payday loan may seem like a viable alternative. Unfortunately, again, uh, it's the the industry is, is predicated on people returning time and time again to take out the loans. And I I, I read a, a statistic that said for every new customer um, a payday loan company sees, uh, fifteen are repeat. And, and 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 so I think the government's there to protect us, right? And uh, we need some protection from the worst excesses of, of this industry because they're not willing to self-monitor. And uh, we see them set up, uh, certainly, you walk downtown Hamilton, uh, it's payday loan shop after payday mm-hmm. loan shop after payday loan shop. And obviously, they wouldn't be there if they weren't making astronomical profits. We know they are. And we know those profits are leaving our community. And uh, they're not going to benefit uh, local neighborhoods or local people. Um, it's you know, I think it's time this industry was held to account. And I would hope that uh, the government will will look kindly on, on some proposed amendments to Bill 59 that would uh, recommend um, much tougher restrictions on the industry. So not only lowering the interest rate, um, and I think it should be lowered to what the criminal interest rate uh, under the Criminal Code of Canada is, but also in la- allowing people to repay over a longer period of time. And I think what we what we really need is to look at payday loans the same way we look at uh, other vices in society like cigarettes. And we need something akin to 
cigarette uh, warning labels uh, on, on, on plastered on the front of payday loan shops um, because this is bad for our financial health. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Graham Crawford and uh, Fred Fuchs on, and they were talking about their uh, initiative, well, they among two, uh, many others, of course, uh, to purchase the old Westdale Theater and uh, to refurbish it, reopen it, and uh, make it the jewel that it used to be. Well, uh, we told you we were going to keep you posted as to how that was progressing. Uh, we had great high, high hopes of when we had the discussion when uh, Graham and uh, Fred joined us here in studio. But uh, there have been some developments on that, too, on a very positive side, too. Joining us to talk about this is Jeremy Freiberger, who's the chief connector and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects, and also part of the group uh, called the Westdale Theatre Group that's involved in this. Jeremy, thanks for the time. It's great to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having us back. You, uh, <laughs> when you started doing the work you've done in this community to try to promote the arts, it was kind of like pushing us a boulder uphill. Uh, <laughs> there seems to be a groundswell of support for a lot of the stuff you guys are doing. That's got to be gratifying. It's it's really fun to be working in the culture sector in Hamilton right now. Like you say, like I think from ten years ago or even five years ago, the the pace is rampant and the number of people that come out to support projects is just uh, overwhelming. So we're really pleased to be where we're at. Now you got your hands full with a lot of the work you're already doing in this community. What attracted you to the West Hill project? Uh, we've been we've been sort of keeping our eye on it for a number of years. We um, back when um, Brian McCaddy was counselor in Ward One, he reached out to us and sort of asked us if we could help play a role in, in his conversations with the family, and then that got passed on to Aiden Johnson when he um, moved into that seat. So we've, you know, we keep our eye out on cultural facilities in, in Hamilton and all, sort of all throughout the province, and we knew that the West End was one that both the neighborhood was concerned about and the city was concerned about. So um, as soon as uh, we met Fred uh, through Liz Parker, I don't know, maybe six or eight months ago when he sort of peeked his head up and said he was curious about the project, too. We chatted and said uh, as soon as we saw a window for being involved, we would we would hop in and help. So we're, uh, we're really pleased to be at the table. Now, let's face it, at, at some point in the conversation, I mean, there have been some great folks like yourself and others that, that have been you know doing some great work and a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to promoting the arts. And like I say, finally, City Council seems to have come on board with a lot of this stuff, too. But really, at, at yeah. some point, Jeremy, it comes down to money, doesn't it? Uh, and what, it can, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, because it's going to take money to fix this thing up. But the good news is, is uh, at least the money for the purchase price of the theater is in place right now. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty big f- hurdle to come overcome. It is. It was a daunting one when we realized we had, we, you know, we threw our offer into the mix and they signed it back. We had 30 days to get ourselves to a point where we could release our conditions and feel confident going forward. So we, we dove right in and, and really it has been all four members of the board and a handful of other people sort of throwing in, uh, throwing their name in the hat um, to hunt for those financers. And, and it is a financing scenario. So we've got a handful of founders that have stepped up to uh, create a, uh, what's called a syndicated mortgage for the organization. So the Insight Foundation and a number of others whose names we can't sort of publicize just yet um, have gotten us to the point where we've got the funding to go ahead and make that purchase real. And now the lawyers are just working out the the paperwork, but you're right, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling, it's, it's very humbling for someone in my position to realize that our community is at the point where there are enough well-heeled people in our community that are big supporters of culture that when we needed to find $2 million in 30 days, 
uh, they were there for us, and, and we're really excited to be in that spot. Why the enthusiasm? Is it because we've lost so many other buildings and we, we just, at some point have to just say stop enough is enough? It, it, it could be part of that. I put up a thread on Facebook a while back when we were doing some writing because I knew other people in my network would know the answer. It's sort of like, what are all the other theaters we've torn down? And, and It's uh, a pretty long list. It's a really long list, and Hamilton back in the 40s uh, used to be a mecca for theater. It's where big big theater producers would actually test shows before they sent them on tours through the state. So we used to have places like the Century and all those theaters um, all, all over this community, and I think it goes back to, we're back at this point where we've got media at the tip of our fingertips, literally on our phones and everything, but we still crave this community experience and theaters like the Westdale used to be in every neighborhood throughout this city so I think when people realized that it might be in jeopardy there were a lot of people sitting in wait wanting to see it happen and we've heard from dozens of people now that said oh we you know we had a handful of friends over for dinner when we heard it went up for sale and we chatted through the idea of buying it ourselves we don't know anything about theaters but we thought someone should you know so um, it's amazing how many people I think were thinking about playing a role in the theater and now that We've kind of anchored that down and said that uh, the theater is going to be saved and we're going to move it forward as a big community project. They're all coming out saying they want to be a part of it, too. It, it may sound like an elementary thing to somebody like yourself and others in the arts community, but I mean, I, and I've mentioned this to our listeners. I think I mentioned it when uh, when Fred and Graham were in studio with us here uh, a few weeks ago. I mean, my dad worked at the old Palace Theater for many years when I was just a little yeah. kid. So I spent a lot of time in the, you know backstage there and, and roaming around that building. Uh, and it's it's a magical place, and and then you hear some of the stories about the people that played there, and not not the movies oh, necessarily. Yeah. I mean, movies are movies, but some of the live performances that went on there through the years too, and, uh, and and the same thing at the Capitol. And you mentioned the Century and so many other great theaters, the Tivoli, of course. We yeah. you know we all know about the tragedy of it with the Tivoli Theater and what happened there. But at some point, you just got to say, you know what, this is this has got to stop. And and the Westdale looks like it's kind of like the last stand, and a, maybe a chance for us to turn this whole thing around. We've talked a number of times as a group in saying that we, we don't just want to save the building, that we want to save the soul that exists in that building. And and that's in the character of the space. It's in the kind of films they show and those sorts of things. And um, and so many times I've been through buildings in this city, you know, whether it was my first visit to the Cotton Factory mm-hmm. or any of the other projects we've been a part of, that you, you even when the building's not alive, <laughs> in, 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 you know, like it's not being animated, they still hold some sort of energy that that we want to save as a community. And we've said that so many times, that we're not just saving a building, we're saving part of this community's soul. And I think Hamilton, in the last while, has we've seen some pretty rapid progress on a, a number of things. And condo projects and things are all part of our future, but we've got to save some of those pieces that are part of our past and um, and should be part of our future, that this isn't just a nostalgic move. This is part of wanting to preserve the idea of community and how cinema and live theater and music play a part in that future. Um, so it's not just about saving an old relic. It's about saving that experience for future generations. Too. Well, I mean, we lost our way back. And when I say we, I mean we as a society here in North America yeah. with with urban renewal back in the 1960s. And, and the mantra then uh, was let's tear down that old stuff and build something brand new and shiny. And, and, and it wasn't just happening here. It was happening all over the place. I mean, we lost sure. our, our city hall, uh, which is now where the, the city center, the Eaton Center is now, and, and other classic buildings. We just talked about the theaters. 
Uh, and then we would we'd sit there, and then we'd complain about the fact that you know I was just over in Europe or I was just over in England, and boy, yeah. uh, they got all these old buildings. Why didn't we do that? Well, because we weren't <laughs> thinking. That's why. So yeah. it, it, the fact that that people are starting to see the light now and starting to say, "Hey, that is worth saving. That is worth doing something with," and, and effective reuse. And and Westdale, I think, fits right into that. Absolutely, and we're seeing I think Hamilton kind of emerge as a community that's got some specialty in in adaptive reuse and restoration. When I look at the work of people like Steve Kulikowski and Core Urban Developments and Jeff Saswick and all the work he's doing restoring some of the beautiful buildings in our core. Uh, you know, we've seen a fight over Gore Park, even though it hasn't landed where we wanted, maybe. We're well, and the cotton the factory. Let's, let's not forget absolutely. the cotton factory. Absolutely. I mean, the work that was done before and now the work that's being done by Rob Zeidler and gang there of taking that and giving it a new identity, I think is reflective of Hamilton's new identity, where this where we've gone from a manufacturing uh, base, and we need to be proud of that, but we also need to think about how we're moving into the future and, and finding new and innovative uses and innovative ways of keeping these projects alive is, um, I think, essential to the, the long-term identity of Hamilton. And I think we're, we're, we're doing really well in that. And, and, and I, I'd be remiss not to say that we've been really thankful of the support from the city of Hamilton in the and the economic development staff and zoning and planning really coming to the table. And even the Heritage Department uh, folks came out last week to give us a walkthrough on how Heritage designation works, making it really easy for us to understand what our options are as a group of people trying to save a building and what all the pitfalls and practicalities are of doing that. They're making it really easy for us to, to follow along and, and uh, dot our eyes and cross our T's as we sort of head to the finish line. So it's been great to see the support from so many people from from people emailing us saying, my grandma's 90 and she's seen every movie there since she was 60 and she wants to see more, so keep doing the great work you're doing to uh, funders coming to the table. It's been really overwhelming, all the different people that are making sure that, that we get to execute this the way the community would like us to. So. One of the things, though, about when I see what's developed over the last little while, though, Jeremy, is, is I mean, your enthusiasm and Graham's and, and Fred's and, and, and Bob Croxford is, is, is enormous. But it's infectious, too, because what I'm hearing now is that people in the community are basically saying, what can we do to help? I mean, my understanding is you've yeah. got a retired Cineplex Odeon employee who's helping with design for the, the restructuring and the things of this nature. Uh, they, they're, they're coming to the table right now, and this, this, is, this is something we don't see or haven't seen for a long time in this city. Graham Crawford wrote this term a couple of weeks ago that being this urban barn raising, and, it's, and it really is feeling like that right now. Like you're saying, we've got... Uh, Gerald Stanley, who's worked with Cineplex Odeon for 20 years, helping us redesign the concession stands and things. We've got Hamilton Video and Sound and Forward Acoustics coming out to help us with the technical side of things. We've got people emailing and saying, I used to work on, uh, I've got a company that builds neon signs, and if you guys are going to rebuild that 30s marquee, let me know when I need to show up. And tons of people saying, I don't know anything about running a theater, but if you need people to tear out seats or paint walls or whatever, sign me up. So we, we've got a meeting later this week where the board has said, like, we need to get our heads around how we, how do we manage all these other people that want to be a part of it and make sure that we're um, um, using their skills and expertise and passion to match ours. And, and, and like you said, like, there, there are four of us or maybe six or eight of us right now that are super passionate about where we're going, but that's been matched every time we've done one of these projects. I remember when we did a building at... at um, Gage and Cumberland called Paperbox Studios. We had our first opening of that building when the studio walls were finally up, but like we didn't have half the place built yet. 
And uh, I have this photo still of the stairwell just being this sea of people coming into the building because Hamiltonians have decided they want to understand this role that heritage buildings and culture and whatnot play in their neighborhoods. And they show up on dro- in droves to things. Like I think of Whitney McMeekin's events in these hidden buildings throughout the city throughout the year. Uh, same thing. I think half the attendance is people who are just curious. And uh, I feel really lucky that we get to be a part of projects where we're both piquing people's curiosity and then taking that and making it something tangible that they can enact in their community as a volunteer or a sponsor or a donor or whatever it might well be they want to do. Well, and this one's particularly, I think, uh, attractive to an awful lot of people because in some cases, and, and you've been involved in some of these great projects that have turned out so very well, but it, it's in many people's minds, it's in the abstract. Like, well, that was an old factory. What are you guys going to do with it? You know, it's just four yeah. walls. But this is a theater. This is basically a restoration project. It is, and, and we, we're a part of a group that's doing a study right now for the Ontario BIA Association, looking at all the BIAs throughout Ontario, 300 and some odd of them, and uh, BIA managers told us that the top assets for driving engagement in a community are cultural assets, so theaters, churches, music halls, things of those sort, drive new and different people to a neighborhood to help them identify who they are and drive commerce and engagement and stuff, so... I think part of the reason people are really drawn to the Westdale Cinema is that that community was a planned community in the 30s. It was one of the first planned communities in Canada. And at the center of that, they put a theater. And, and not because um, not because the theater was maybe going to make scads of money or whatever, but because the theater was the place where you bumped into your neighbor or where you had your birthday party or, uh, you know, those sorts of social engagements that were essential to building good neighborhoods. So, um being able to uh, enshrine that in the neighborhood for another 50 years is, I think, what's driving a lot of us, that we, we want to have that social, communal, cultural space in our neighborhood so that we can um, enjoy life and understand the people around us. And, and that's why Cobalt's so excited about being a part of it and, and, and why we think it's going to be a grand success, is that so, so many people have caught on to that idea that these are essential elements just like just like transit or parking or office space or homes, cultural assets in neighborhoods are essential. Well, and we didn't have very many of those neighborhood theaters. I mean, you know, back in the day, I mentioned the Palace and the Capitol and the Century and all these other great rest- or, uh, places we had back then. They were all in the downtown core, and that, and that was wonderful to go down there. You could go grab something at the Chicken Roost and then go to a movie or whatever you wanted to do. Sure. But I grew up on the mountain, and so we, we, and we had our own theater on Concession Street. Yeah. And and we could go right there, you know. I could walk from our house and you know, go see a movie on a Saturday afternoon or something like that. And so similarly, was what happened at Westdale right now, which begs the question, I guess, how is how is the we know how the community at large is is embracing this idea. What about the community in Westdale themselves? Sure. So a handful of things that we've been working on, and and we we had chosen sort of not to be overly engaged in the neighborhood until we knew we were the ones actually doing the project, but. So we've reached out to the BIA, and we're hoping to meet with them soon. We've been meeting with the McMaster Students Union to talk about how the students want to be involved, and we know there's maybe some tension between the neighborhood and the students, so maybe this is a place where we can have some common identity and and achievement together, and they're very excited. Um, We've been uh, put on the Ward 1 participatory budgeting um, uh, ballot, so uh, citizens are going to get a chance to, I guess, vote for the Westdale Cinema and whether... Some of, some of the funds can go towards the restoration of the facade or things of that sort. Um, Aiden Johnson's been great in directing a lot of neighborhood folks to us. 
um, who want to get involved. So I think the next phase, so we don't take possession of the building until probably June 1st or so. Um, we're in sort of just the closing paperwork period now. And once we're in a position where we can open the doors, we'd love for it to be open for things like doors open and all of those things and have kind of a final week possibly where we're just uh, inviting people in to see the theater for one more time because we'll have to close it for a good period of time to do renovations. But uh, we really want to have like a big open town hall where we spill the beans for everybody and say, this is the timeline and this is the vision of where we want to get to and and all of that and all the hard work that's going to happen over that next year. And um, hopefully we connect with the neighborhood and, and, and they feel proud to be part of uh, the neighborhood. And it, going back to that OBS study, when you look at the Westdale Cinema was built to help drive traffic to the downtown core and, and to make Westdale, that little hub in the center, really fantastic. And if you think right now it's operating at 12%, maybe 10% capacity, it should be operating at 75 or 80% capacity, which would mean you know, upwards of 100,000 more visitors coming to those stores and shops and restaurants in downtown Westdale. And uh, I can't see the neighborhood not wanting that to happen to see their, their neighborhood be thriving and, and uh, filled with all the great stuff that we're seeing in the other neighborhoods that are that are uh, growing and changing in Hamilton. Yeah, i, I got to think of it. The, the commercial enterprises that are there already, uh, they, they would love to have a, a theater that's going to start bringing people down there. I mean, you've got some great restaurants just a couple yeah. of doors down. It's fabulous coffee shops that have sprung up in the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, it, it gets a little bit thin uh, as you get down the street a little bit. But, I mean, obviously with more traffic, uh, the possibility of those storefronts uh, becoming viable again is, is pretty strong. And I think, there's, like you said, there's a lot of great stuff already there. But I think when you realize that um, if this theater does what it's supposed to do and drives that traffic and those stores are... Are, are selling more product and having more people pop in for dinner and whatnot, that means that those small business owners have the confidence to also make investments in their in their building, in their staff, uh, in their product, and all of that. So it's, it's uh, one of those things that we sort of hope that this boat helps lift a lot of other boats um, and, uh, and really drive. It gives people the opportunity to make those growth choices because they've got a more confident uh, economy around their neighborhood. Well, it's uh, positive news, and it looks like uh, you've overcome a major hurdle, obviously. You've got a closing date right now, and uh, then you get the keys, and uh, then you get the paintbrushes out. (laughs) Paintbrushes will come a little bit later in the game, but uh, first it's going to be maybe some sledgehammers and some wrenches. Uh, We've got to get some old old mechanical and whatnot out of the building, but then we start the fun renewal process, and it gets really exciting. Jeremy, congratulations to you and the group for the great work that you've done so far. We'll stay in touch as this uh, unfolds over the next year or so. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Bill, and I really, we all really appreciate the uh, the ongoing support for me to spread the word about what we're doing. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, there will be a, a picket today outside the LCBO store at Upper James and Fennel, which was uh, once known as the Mountain Plaza Mall. You know the location there. Workers will be picketing today outside the LCBO on Upper James and Fennel from 12 till 2. They are... Uh, Protesting is part of Opsu's campaign against the po- provincial privatization of the store and the sale of alcohol in grocery stores. Uh, we're going to ask you your opinion on what the provincial initiative is right now and whether you agree or disagree with that. Uh, I've been pretty vocal about my position on this, and I'll get to that in a couple of seconds. But first of all, let me get Sean Swayze into the conversation, who is uh, with Opsu Local 287. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us some background on this. Sean, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. No problem. Thanks, Bill. Ex- explain, maybe just outline for our listeners, Sean, exactly what the concerns of the union are here. Our concerns is uh, letting the 
letting the alcohol go into the uh, grocery stores where um, the employees aren't trained and um, have concerns with, we just have concerns with how the transactions uh, happen in the grocery stores and um, uh, agency stores and all that stuff. Because uh, us as LCBO employees are well-trained um, and will not allow anybody that's intoxicated or anything like that um, have the alcohol in their hands. Have there been examples, have there been stories that you've heard that you could relate to us about where there have been some problems? Um, not specifically. Like We, we just know that um, us as LCBO employees um, take our job seriously and we make sure that um, every transaction is a good transaction to the uh, good citizens of Ontario. And and you don't feel that the people that are selling uh, beer and, and wine in some of these other stores uh, are properly trained? No, we don't feel that they are. But this is this is not new. I mean, when you look at the uh, the wine kiosks in particular, Sean, and they've been in place for quite some time right now. And and the reason I'm asking, uh, you know, whether you've got some information that there have been some some problems and some some people that have been served that maybe shouldn't have been served, etc. I because I, I, I haven't heard of anything like this yet. Yeah, um, yeah, not actually at liberty to actually share those stories, right? It's just that, um, like, the wine kiosk and that stuff, that, that's a different scenario as well. Like, those those people are actually um, trained through the wineries and all that stuff, and that's, that's a whole different uh, aspect of it as well, right? They, they've been around for years. As opposed to, and I, I have to get some clarity on this, as to what the, the rationale is at some of these other stores, uh, and, uh, for instance, I mean, there's a grocery store at Ancaster that sells beer and, and uh, you know, beer products right now, too. Uh, but you're only allowed to go to one cashier. I've, I've not purchased the stuff, so I don't know what the, the protocol is. I don't know if that cashier is trained. I don't know what's going on there. But it's you're, you're concerned about abuses of the system, then, essentially, are you? Yes, that's that's our biggest concern. And the, the simple fact that the, the actual money from the LCBO actually goes back to um, supporting um all the like mris hospitals schools all that stuff whereas the when people purchase at a grocery store it goes directly back into the big big conglomerate of whatever company it is and, and i have been on record and you know this sean you and i have talked in the past about this and i've told our listeners i i like the lcbo i i know that may not be a popular thing to say these days for a variety of reasons but uh, I think it's a very well-run organization. Uh, I like the professionalism there. I like the assistance that people get from staff there. Uh, and I like the fact that, uh, as you just stated, it makes a lot of money for the province. And and I'd hate to see them lose that that potential revenue. But is there any way at all that you can coexist with this this new policy? I mean, uh, is there any evidence that the LCBO is being hurt by uh, by this new policy right now? Are sales down? Are, are people being laid off? What's going on? Um. Sales are maybe down a bit. Like it hasn't really hurt hurt the actual LCBO that much. I think it's just that there's there's more um, more drinking going on. Actually, um, like you you still always have to come to the LCBO for all the hard stuff. So you know, I think we can coexist. Like um, you asked, um, yeah, it's just a it's just a matter of where people actually want to shop. And if you want good experience, I think that shopping at the LCBO, you get a good experience shopping at the LCBO. We know we know our stuff, and we try to t- treat everybody very well. 
you, I, the information I received today uh, suggesting that you're concerned about, uh, I think the, the phrase you used was the privatization of the LCBO. Do you really think that's a, a, a goal by this government right now? Because I hear quite the contrary from uh, the wind government themselves. They, they want to maintain the LCBO. They're just looking for giving consumers more choice here, more availability. Yeah, um, I never, like, the, the way it's going right now, like, it's just they've been very, very aggressive on opening up um, grocery stores. Like, I know there's um, 100, 130, 130 right now, yeah. Yeah, and there's 70 that actually have both wine and beer. And I know by July 1st, I believe there's another 80 slated. So, you know, the the way the government's going is, that, like, it's, they're, being very aggressive on opening up and making alcohol available everywhere. All right. Uh, so you're going to be uh, protesting at uh, the store in Upper James and Federal. To, uh, to, is this uh, the first of a series of protests that you're going to be doing? There's There's been many across the entire province, yes. And we're going to continue that until our voice is heard um, by Kathleen Wynn. We're just asking um, members of the general public to actually sign a card supporting us as LCBO um, workers. And what's the request at this stage, Sean? Do you want to see this program reversed? Do you want to see them stop it in its tracks, not do any more? What's what's the goal here? We'd actually like to see it just stop in its tracks right now, and then hopefully moving forward, um, you have to you do have to actually have to come to the LCBO and um, shop for your stuff. Like you said, the, like the Sobeys here in Ancaster and that stuff, you can only go into one line when you're purchasing alcohol. Here, you can go into any line. Mm-hmm. Right, and we are all trained. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.